Because politics touches every single person every single day. From the moment you wake up and you have water in your faucet to how clean that water is, to the parameters of the school bus seatbelts that your kid gets on, to when your trash gets picked up, to, yeah, what does health insurance look like? Every single aspect of your life is touched by politics. And it's important that the collective understands that and, and understands why we have to have representation of everyone to be able to get to the solutions we need to advance our communities forward. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I spoke recently to Stephanie Brown James, co-founder of The Collective, which is made up of several organizations, including The Collective PAC, that together promote and fundraise for black candidates for office in order to build black political power. Stephanie has a great story going from Howard University to the NAACP to National African American Vote Director at the Obama reelect to moving into political entrepreneurship. We had a good conversation about how she navigated the complexities of life to get a significant organization off the ground and thriving. So after a quick word from our sponsor, listen to my interview with Stephanie Brown James of Collective Pack. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Stephanie, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Hi, I'm Stephanie Brown James, co-founder and senior advisor of what started as the Collective Pack. Now we refer to as the Collective. I am originally from Bedford Heights, Ohio, which is right outside of Cleveland. I love Cleveland, claim Cleveland all day, every day. <laughs> and uh, my background primarily is in uh, civic engagement, social justice, civil rights work. I worked for many years at the NAACP. When I left the organization, I was the National Youth and College Division President uh, and also the National Field Director for the organization. And and in 2012, I served as President Obama's African-American vote director for his re-election campaign. So it's kind of the intersection of where my civil rights and electoral work merged together. The family that you grew up with in Cleveland, was it a political one? You know, it didn't start off that way, but I would say now definitely my father has been a city councilman in our city of Bedford Heights for over 20 years. He first joined city council, I think when I was in middle school. I just grew up going to city council meetings, not putting two and two together about the, the power of what it meant to serve in office. Um, and I even sometimes forget my first example of, you know, up close and personal with a candidate and uh, with an elected was, was actually my dad. You learn a lot from that, I assume, just by osmosis. 
what what do you think the main thing you learned about seeking and holding elective office was from having a dad in that role? The first thing that I always found so surprising is that um, he usually ran uncontested. It wasn't until maybe a couple of years ago when there was another gentleman that that seriously ran against him. And so, you know, we didn't necessarily have the experience of needing to go door to door. And of course, my dad was always really active. And I think um, for him, he made sure that he put the residents really at the top of his priority list. At the time, he was um, a middle school art teacher. And so to do that during the day, come home, take calls from constituents, go to their houses, do everything from helping them cut their yards to advocating for them. I mean, it was just a hodgepodge of really being of service. My first example really of what it meant to be in electoral office, it, it equates to service and being available and being a champion for people who don't um, necessarily feel as though they can have a voice themselves to do that or, or just really need someone to help push their issues and, and get solutions and get things done. Yeah. You went to Howard uh, for mm-hmm. college, right? Yes, I did. Why that choice? Obviously a great school. Well, when I was 14, I joined the NAACP, the Cleveland chapter, Cleveland Youth Council. And so that really started my love affair with all things civil rights and Black history. And um, by the time I was a senior, I knew that I wanted to work for the NAACP. It was just my lifelong, I mean, the lifelong at 14, 15, but <laughs> I just i just knew like that's what I'm going to do. And so I needed to find a way to the D.C. area. Um, the national headquarters at that time was in Baltimore. So I actually looked at Morgan State University, which was about 15 minutes away from the headquarters of NAACP. The National Urban League uh, Cleveland chapter had a college tour that they took a bunch of us on and we went to Morgan State. But once we got to Howard's campus, I stepped foot on campus and I said, okay, <laughs> there's there's no other choice. You know, I can, I can take the train up to Baltimore, you know, 45 minutes, hour away. But Howard, to me, just it had an energy and to see students that were completely dressed head to toe in, in suit and tie, to seeing students, black students that were dressed in all black goth or dressed for the fashion runway and to have all this brilliance around. It was it was so exciting. And that excitement actually never left. I even I still feel that feeling whenever I'm on a yard. And it's the epicenter of black educational excellence. And so, you know, I was very much aware of, of all of those that came before me that stepped on that campus, Dora Neil Hurston, Stokely Carmichael, as we know, Vice President Harris. I mean, just the uh, Ozzie Davis, Ruby D, I mean Tony Morrison. It can go on and on, you know, Elijah Cummings. They're a good marshal. I mean, that's ridiculous how many people went to Howard. So I had to be a part of the number. Yeah. And you did some NAACP stuff while an undergrad, right? I did. Yeah. I actually helped to reactivate our uh, Howard University chapter. So I served as a president of our, our campus chapter. I also was a um, what's called a National Youth Work Committee member, which basically is a, a youth member that helps to advise on kind of the, the national youth and college strategy. So I did that. Um, I was also SGA president at Howard. I ran as a sophomore, served as a junior. So that was different. And uh, yeah, was always very much inclined to figure out how I can be an advocate. And uh, I really was able to hone those skills, I think, greatly at Howard. Yeah, I imagine so. Uh, What did you study? What was your major? 
My major was business management. I was definitely more interested in extracurricular activities than <laughs> in my studies. And I didn't want to do political science because I didn't necessarily, I, I just wanted to work for NAACP. So I'm like, okay, I, I know how to do that. Let me figure out the business aspect and focus on, you know, gaining those skills. At one point I thought I was going to go to law school and that quickly left me. Um, but yeah, I was a business management major at Howard. I, I noticed that your co-founder in some of your enterprises named Quentin has the same last name and also went to Howard. At what point along the way did you run into this fellow? Well, the funny story about that, Nathaniel, is that Quentin was, he's from South Carolina, Greenville, South Carolina, hometown of Reverend Jesse Jackson, and uh, also grew up in NAACP. When I met him, I had become the National Youth and College Division Director, and he was the youth president for South Carolina, meaning we have a bit of an age gap. And so we're seven years apart. I remember meeting him and he said, um, I'm going to Howard. Now, when he said I'm going to Howard, I'm thinking he's a current student at Howard. <laughs> no, he was literally a senior in high school. <laughs> Preparing to go to Howard, he ended up going to Furman University for a few years, uh, dropped out to work on the Obama campaign. And at that moment, um, he was, I think, 20. I was 26, going on 27. We started dating. So it was a while before we dated. It was fairly <laughs> legal. And uh, he ended up transferring to, to Howard. And yeah, we've been together ever since. Well, my wife is a tiny bit older than me, so I always think that that direction is a good, a good way to go sometimes. You know? Yes. So you did reach your goal of working for the NAACP after college, right? How long did you work there? I worked there um, for eight years total. I took about a year and a half off. Just, I felt a bit dismayed at the organization. I was one of those, and still am, just very... Um, if this is what your mission is, you need to stay focused on your mission. And uh, I just remember at one point, this is before the 2004 elections, I just felt like we were doing so much of the organization that was internal focused and not external. And at that time, the, the 2004 election was so important and like, I got to go. And I moved back to Ohio. I did some electoral work. Um, I did some work actually around, strangely enough, I don't know how I fell into it, but I did some STD prevention work in juvenile uh, justice or juvenile facilities. And then I ended up going back to NAACP and it was the best decision ever. I would have never actually left the organization if, you know, I didn't feel like I needed to at a certain time. And then also I got the opportunity to join the Obama campaign and, you know, the rest is history. But um, it is definitely the the biggest learning experience I've ever received. It, it was its own university working for NAACP and I'm grateful for the, for the experiences. Well, it has a kind of a hallowed history, but it also has a, some elements of a checkered history more lately and, and has been in certain areas upstaged by other organizations that have come along with new strategies and uh, techniques and so on in the black community. How do you see the NAACP now with the lens looking backwards and how did you see it then? Yeah, I see it. Uh, one, I, I'm a student of of history and especially Black history. And so 
one, just the fact that this organization literally is still around from 1909 is absolutely incredible. It's absolutely amazing. And I can say over the last couple of years now under the leadership of Derek Johnson, who's a good friend, um, has always been a mentor to me, grew up himself within the NAACP. There's a difference when you have an organic connection to the organization and you become the leader to help direct where it goes. I think there's certain organizations where, sure, you can find someone that has no working experience with it. The NAACP, because its history is so complex and the need to have strong leadership to really direct it forward has to be tied to that history, yet innovative enough to take it to the next level. I think part of the challenges that the organization had you know, years prior was that um, the folks that were chosen to head up the organization were just too external. That's a lot to learn on the job. And now that they have someone who who is able to connect the past to the future um, and is open to also the new ideas of younger folks and younger organizations, I, I actually think they're really on a great trajectory to, to remain strong. And listen, they're in the black. How about that? <laughs> you know, for years, they, the organization was not in the black. They are very much in the black and, and are healthy and, and doing well. And I think they're going to continue to do well. I mean, you, you said that it was like a, a second university to you. What do you think was the course of study there? What do you think you mainly took away? You know, one is definitely around human behavior um, and, and how do people behave within groups. I, I sometimes feel like, man, I, I, I really wish I studied uh, sociology and psychology in school because everything is about how do you interact as humans and especially when you have to interact together towards a goal of eradicating racism or seeking justice. You're both having to figure out how we as members of this chapter can work together, uh, lower our ego to figure out how to be of service, yet we're trying to battle this thing that's external. Part of the challenge and part of the learning experience was really trying to help people remain focused on, we have an external goal that we need to accomplish, that you cannot allow the internal bickerings or differences to get in the way of that. And how do I create a training curriculum and a field program to help provide structure for people to be able to do that? Because it's hard sometimes for people to do that on their own if they don't have the tools they need to be able to stay focused on the external, external goals they have. So you left to do the Obama campaign? I did. Yeah. To run, I don't know, the African-American vote for uh, the re-election of the first African-American president. That's a pretty good opportunity. That's pretty exciting. Yeah. It was wild. You know what? That job took me, it was a little over a six-month process for me to get that job. Um, and I remember, you know, at the time I'm national field director for NAACP. I, I oversee, you know, 1500 units across the country and internationally. I'm creating a field strategy and I'm 20. I think at that point I was 29 years old. I wouldn't say I had a chip on my shoulder, but I definitely felt like, well, 
come on, I could do this job. There's, there's you no felt qualified. Yeah, come on. I'm overly qualified for this job. What are you all talking about? Why is this taking so long? Like, I don't understand. Yeah. Was that because there was competition for it? Because they didn't have their act together? Uh, you know what? There there was some competition for it. And it's, it is, you know, once you get to a certain level in this work, especially the civil rights, social justice kind of, you know, civic engagement, we all know each other. And so there's definitely people that, you know, I had a couple of really, really, really great guy friends that were also up for the position. And I was intimidated too. Let me say that. I don't want to sound too like cocky, but I, and I was intimidated. Like, you know, people are coming from the Hill and coming from, uh, I had never worked on a presidential campaign. I mean, the most of the things I, I, I had done was I, I volunteered on a congressional campaign, but that was only like a couple hours. So anyway, long story short, I remember sitting in one of the interviews with Jim Messina, who was the campaign manager. And he really was pushing me on, do you think you are ready for the pace of this job? And I'm thinking like, once again, I basically feel like, I, I mean, I'm working 18 hour days every day at NAACP. Like this is, I'm on the road constantly. This is what I'm trained to do. And uh, I get on the job. I think the first week I was completely submerged under <laughs> pressure, water, stress, whatever it was. I was under a building. I, it was just like, this is this is a different thing here. And so that was like my graduate degree came at the Obama campaign. You know, I moved to Chicago, had never been there before. When they say a quick pace, it's the level at which you can never put your phone down because you can never be unresponsive. But then also, you know, I had to interact with all of these leaders I had engaged with through NAACP, but now through a partisan lens. And, you know, once again, I'm the 29, 30-year-old girl to them, to many people, who is trying to get them to understand, one, that we have to support President Obama and his reelection. And I understand what, what we as a community feel like we didn't get, you know, from his first administration, but what we will lose if he's not reelected, but also that us to do all this without any cash. And that, that was the other, you know, there, there was definitely, um, and sorry to be long-winded here, Nathaniel, but I think this one point is really important. I can remember in 2000 when, as we know, that was a very consequential election. 2000 was a turning point in civil rights where you now had organizers getting paid to organize. So getting like real money to do what we had done as volunteers for so long. You fast forward then to 2012 and the expectation of, well, I'm not going to organize if you don't give me a bag of cash. Like, that's just how it is. It's like, no, we're not doing that old model anymore. Like, that was really difficult to kind of, on a, on a more local level in communities, deal with leaders who expected to receive a whole lot to do what we already should be and had been doing for so long. As, as the Black community, that, that was um, something that was challenging to overcome. But, you know, we did and we won and, you know, the rest is history. Why do you think there was no cash for that? I spoke recently to a mobilization director for the Ossoff campaign in Georgia, the Senate campaign. And they had a paid organizing mobilization thing and they were sending out $500 checks. Of course, that was nationalized race and a lot of extra money. Sometimes it still happens. It's fairly rare. Why was the Obama campaign, which, you know, did have a lot of money, why had they made that decision? 
so much of the the money that was expected is was called quote unquote street money. Oh, so that, we're talking the walking around money. We talking about walking around money. Not money on the books. Nah, we talking yeah. about the walking around. Put that thing in my pocket. Slip it underneath the table, buddy. You know, I'm just being very transparent here. That that's that's what we're talking about. So the Obama campaign was just too upright for that kind that, of stuff. That's that's not going to happen. Not, not with the president of the United States. Can't can't happen. How about that? It cannot happen. Yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, I think even because of course we paid organizers. That's the other thing. We do have a paid organize. So if you, if you have someone in your community, we are seeking people to pay to organize. But what I'm not going to do is because you're the leader of a group of people is give you walking around money. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, that may or may not go anywhere. Yeah. Tell me about it. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, it sounds like it was a challenge and and you won it. Tell me a little more about that job and, and what it was like. One, I was just struck by the size of when I walked into the Chicago headquarters. And I mean, it is literally there's two sides of the office. There's one side is a huge room where you just see rows of tables and you just see people everywhere. I And then they okay, here's where you sit. You mean between these two people right here? Like I, I'm coming from an office. <laughs> <laughs> Where's my door? Where's my cow? I have a door, cows. Like what? I'm confused. And I mean, not even a cubicle, like just a table. And you know, it's like, oh, okay. But I'm also a director, so there's a mental shift in having to be like, okay, let me focus and get to work. The power of headphones became really strong then, but also. You know, I would say uh, one of the things that I was overwhelmed with was um, how the diversity level of the staff wasn't where I thought it was going to be when I first walked in. At one point, um, I had put out a call, like an email to partner organizations saying, hey, we're really looking for diverse folks to work on a campaign. These are the jobs that we have open. It made the cover of Political magazine or Political um, uh, to say the Obama campaign can't find people of color to work or something like that. So, of course, they're like, it's a huge thing now. And I'm like, but I'm just sending around like job announcement because, yeah, we do need to hire more people of color here. So it became a catalyst for us, you know, again, we have this very clear external goal that we need to get accomplished. But yet here comes this internal human issue that we have to deal with. And that was that the people of color on the staff felt like we needed more diversity and we needed that diversity to be able to add the perspectives needed to reach out to those core voters that needed to be directly touched. And, and it really became crystal clear to me how much the black community is not a monolithic community. An aha moment that I had never had and not sure I would have experienced on the NAACP was I was in the Columbus area, which has a very high population of of people from Somalia and Northern Africa, kind of. And so, you know, I go in there and I'm talking about, you know, African-Americans for Obama. And they're like, well, no, 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 no. We're African-Americans. You're Black. Like, no, we, we are, you know, just like how any, if you're Chinese American. Right. We're from Africa. No, we're, from, we're, we're from Africa. Like, so yeah. we're African American. <laughs> you are American black. Like be clear. There's a difference. And I had, it was like, oh, okay. Yes. 
And and also, if I am going to Miami Gardens, Florida, I cannot show up there without having information that is written in Creole. Like that is the language they're speaking. They're speaking in French. They're speaking in Creole. They're speaking in English. And so we can't just have surface level materials that say African-Americans for Obama. We have to be very much more granular. And also, we cannot just say, you know, 20 million African-Americans now have health insurance because of the Affordable Care Act. I need to let you know in Ohio, in Cleveland, in Northeast Ohio, this is what the numbers look like. You know, so the specificity that came with working on that campaign um, was a learning lesson and, and one I'm grateful for. I think we, we really try to employ that at the collective. Um, and then lastly, just I mean, these are lifelong friends that I have made. You know, I think about, right, you know, many of us have seen um, Karine Jean-Pierre, uh, who is the, uh, you know, assistant press secretary for the White House. That's my homegirl from the Obama campaign. You know, I'm like, oh, my gosh, Karine, look at you. You know, it's just it's amazing. And I have so many friends like that who are literally helping to lead this country. And we were all just trying to figure out how we could go to happy hour and then come back to the office and work till midnight and then come back in the morning at 6 a.m. Because the first meeting was at 6.30. So, you know, and just that grind that you have with people. I'm, I'm meeting up actually with a friend today. She's a, a comms director for Secretary Marsha Fudge. She's in Cleveland. We're going to meet up for a drink. Lifelong friends. And I'm just really, really grateful for that experience on the campaign. Yeah, it sounds like something. How did you celebrate when you won? Um, I was actually in Cleveland because towards the end, everybody gets sent out from headquarters, you know, and you end up um, in a in a battleground state. So, of course, I'm like, I'm coming home to Cleveland. <laughs> we had a party at a hotel and my parents were there and Quentin was there and uh, my parents grew up in Jackson, Mississippi. I, I remember my mom not too many years ago was saying how um, she had gone back home to Jackson and saw it in the black neighborhood that she grew up in, um, yard signs for a black woman that was running for office. And it dawned on her that she had never seen, she never knew growing up that black people could run for office, let alone that black people could were voting like that. And so she said she just cried when she realized that that was a site she had never seen before in Jackson. Because when she left, she was, you know, 19 years old. And so from that to then have my parents a part of this celebration that I know I was instrumental in helping to get out the vote. It was extremely touching. So. Yeah. Quite a life experience. Mm -hmm. Was there anything between the Obama campaign and starting the collective or did you go, was that the next move for you? So one thing I knew for sure, and I wouldn't necessarily call myself a planner, <laughs> I'm not one to say, nah, I just kind of go with the flow, which is horrible to say, but it's, it's worked out thus far. I knew, though, going into the Obama campaign, I did not want to work on the administration. Like that, that was never appealing to me. I don't necessarily like structure <laughs> or oversight from people. I'm with you there. Yeah. I was like, uh, I got to be my own boss. And I knew at that point, you know, I had this eight year stint with NAACP a year. I was, I don't want to get on another stage and have to say, on behalf of Ben Jealous, president of NAACP, on behalf of President Obama, you know, I want to say on behalf of me, Stephanie Brown at that time, and decided to start a consulting firm 
uh, Quentin and I at that point, we actually, hello, I didn't tell you this. We got married during the campaign. Uh, So we actually got married, ironically, on President Obama's birthday. Um, So as we're doing our first dance near the National Harbor, fireworks goes off. And our guests are like, oh, my gosh, you guys have fireworks. We're like, listen, we barely afforded this wedding. Those fireworks are for President Obama's birthday. It just so happened. It was the same moment we were doing our first dance. So it was good planning, (laughs) incredibly great planning. And um, yeah, we got married. We took a day and I was back on the campaign. We started this consulting firm called Vested Strategies, which we actually still operate. We do civic and community engagement work. At that time, we were really fortunate um, to work with a group called the Climate Action Campaign, which was our our primary client to do educational and and advocacy work around environmental justice with Black leaders and Black organizations. Um, We also worked closely with Google. They were establishing kind of like a, a leaders network around the country. So we have some really great clients um, and we still have it now. So there's, you know, from time to time when Quentin or I feel like we have some capacity to do some external stuff, we, we do that. Um, we've actually helped uh, folks like the National um, Real Estate Association, which which works with Black realtors, to establish their own PAC. So we're starting to do that through the firm. Then we started the collective in 2016, and it's kind of been focused on that now. <laughs> so what is the collective? The collective is powerful. I just want to say that on the front end, when Quentin and I had the idea to, and let me say, because so much now, especially now of my life is, is tied to his life. I mean, we really are like the definition of a partnership. And so he had worked on a ready for Hillary campaign um, when they were trying to encourage her to run for office as if that was really needed. But he, he ran black vote on that campaign and, and he was really intentional about calling it black vote and not African-American vote because black folks say black. And from that experience, realized the power of an entity to be a champion for an elected or potential elected. There was also the uprising we saw from the Freddie Gray murder in Baltimore, Mike Brown and Ferguson. You look at the Ferguson City Council at the time was completely white in this majority black city. And it, it just you just started to see that so much of what was happening to or in or with our community could have a solution to it if there were decisions and conversations being made with electeds that reflected, respected, represented their own communities. And so from that, we decided to start the collective PAC. Um, which was uh, formed in August of 2016. So we're coming up on our five-year anniversary. Our first uh, five endorsed candidates that year. And we were really focused on the collective because if I live in Cleveland, I should really care who the mayor of Atlanta is or who the mayor of Charlotte is or who is the city council person in this city or who is the congressperson. Like it is about all of us. And so is that what you mean by collective? You mean the collective black community or do you mean something different? It is the collective community should care about black elected officials. And most importantly, we say now in order to change the laws, we must change the lawmakers. We have to have equity of representation of who those lawmakers are. And when we looked at the stats at that time that showed that 90% of all elected officials were white, 
we know the majority were white men. That's nationwide. The majority of prosecutors, 95% of prosecutors were white. That stat actually hasn't changed that much. Um, that it was extremely concerning. This, this, this was a time when we didn't have, we now have thankfully reached equity based on black population within the House of Representatives in Congress. But when you look statewide, you know, when you consider the fact that we've never had a black woman governor, you know, we've only ever had two black women, women senators, none currently. There's such a long way to go to have that representation. And we should all care that there currently is not a black woman in the Senate because a black woman in the Senate is going to talk about maternal mortality in a way that no one else can talk about it, but it's an issue that impacts everyone, even though it disproportionately impacts Black women. And so that's why for us, for the, the collective is so powerful, because we want it to, to broaden people's understanding of why we should all care about politics, because politics touches every single person every single day. From the moment you wake up and you have water in your faucet to how clean that water is, to the parameters of the school bus seatbelts that your kid gets on, to when your trash gets picked up. So yeah, what does health insurance look like? Every single aspect of your life is touched by politics. And it's important that the collective understands that and, and understands why we have to have representation of everyone to be able to get to the solutions we need to advance our communities forward. So you decide to recruit and fund Black candidates for office. Is that right? Is that yeah. Yes. Yep. That model was out there already in different ways. Uh, Emily's List recruiting and funding pro-choice women, things like that. What was the landscape like of other organizations that recruited and supported Black candidates when you started? Well, you know, it's interesting because we we always said at the forefront, we wanted to be the Black Emily's List. Hmm. Um, ironically, and we'll probably come to this, and I'm working for Emily's List last year. <laughs> I left the collective for a little bit to work for Emily's List, and it was a great experience. Um, Emily's List is, um, they're the benchmarks on this. They, and this is where we're getting to with the collective. I, I, so I started off by saying that we're powerful because ultimately we want to be able to change the outcome of an election because of the work that we put in. I think when we look at Tashara Jones, who's a new mayor of St. Louis, we can say that the work that the collective did helped to get Tashara Jones elected. And that is because you know, our goal is is by supporting candidates, we want to broaden their national profile. Because yes, if if you live in San Jose, please donate to to Shara Jones. Feel like you have an opportunity to also be impactful in that race, even though you live in California. So being able to raise money for these candidates, being able to introduce them to folks that otherwise may not know their story. And also to be a motivating factor to say, yeah, Tashara Jones is a single mom and has always been of service to her community. She can be mayor and so can you, you know, so changing also the face of what does an elected official looks like. And elect- they're not just white and male. And that is something that we have to overcome within the black community, within, you know, American society that, you know, a U.S. senator doesn't just look like Lindsey Graham. You know, they also look like. Kamala Harris. We don't want them all to look like Lindsey Graham. <laughs> well, no, please, no. Goodness gracious. Now, we we find ourselves uh, not needing to, to recruit as much as we did five years ago or try to recruit because it is slightly overwhelming 
the amount of requests we now have for for support. So we have a, an endorsement process where you can go to collectivepack.org, fill out our candidate questionnaire that gets you within our system, and then our team can like follow up with you and you know figure out how how we are supportive. But um, yeah, I'm excited to see just in five years the 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 growth in candidates we have now. You had been in these big organizations, the Obama campaign, the NAACP, starting your own. Sometimes it can be a bit of a shock because the support that you're used to is not there, particularly at the beginning, right? You are bootstrapping. You know the path, right? Tell me a little about getting this thing off the ground and what it was like. I mean, one thing I would say is we... I hate when people say we got pregnant. No, I got pregnant. Okay, in 2015. Okay, <laughs> my husband was there, but no, nah, I got pregnant in 2015. We had our first child in September of 2015. So by the time we started the collective, Carter was one years old, and we're starting a collective. We have a one year old. We're now living back in Cleveland because we needed the support. So that's where I am now. I live back in the Cleveland area because um, my family is here and. Things were okay in the beginning, August, September, come November elections, when everyone is shocked by Trump winning, the contracts, at this point, we were solely working with Vested Strategies. That That's where our income was coming into. And our clients were primarily, again, in, in the environmental justice space. Well, as we know, climate and everything environmental justice completely went out the window and, and organizations now were in survival mode and, and and not in proactive advocacy mode or training mode. And so our our independent income completely dried up. And we are trying to raise a one-year-old and start a new organization. And it was challenging. I mean, there were days where we would hope to be able to get one happy meal that all three of us could split. People say those stories all the time. And it's like, no, man, like starting a business is not for the faint of heart, but having a supportive network is extremely important. And so, I mean, we really had to lean on my family during that time for everything. Um, fast forward, then a year later, things are, we're starting to approach the 2018 elections, which I think, again, were a very consequential time in electoral politics. Golly, I'm pregnant again. Oh my goodness. Where did this second baby come from? <laughs> Where did he come from? So now we have these two little babies and our third baby, the collective. And it was like, this feels impossible. We're not going to be able to do this. And we're both frantically looking for jobs and we cannot get hired anywhere. And so Nathaniel, here I am. I'm like, but I ran black vote for Obama. I was a national. What do you mean? I can't get hired. People should be hunting you down. Not Man, we couldn't get a job anywhere. And so then we're like, you know what? We have to like not only make the collective work for mission purpose, but because we need some money. We <laughs> need this to be a for real organization. And I think there's something about the pressure of when I was starting uh, my political software company, I had a little bit of savings and I was watching it go away every month. That fear certainly got me out there writing the software and trying to sell the software. Otherwise, I could not sleep. You have to make it happen. Yeah. And, you know, I sometimes look back and I'm like, okay, guy, you funny, but I appreciate you because I felt we had to have those two children at that time for the hustle to be made very real. Like we have to, no, I can't, I can't do this over here because I have to stay focused on building a collective. Like, and then again, we were approaching um, 2018 
we had also started at that. So we had the collective pack when Andrew Gillum decided to run for governor of Florida. We started the collective super pack to really figure out how to be a big player in that race in the primary. And so that was the first foray into, okay, big money politics. We raised a little over two million and um, did TV ads and, and everything. He won the primary, of course. And so we, we realized, you know what, this, we got something here. And, you know, slowly but surely just started to, you know, add on independent contractors to help us here and there. But for the first two and a half years, we, we basically did everything ourselves. Every graphic you ever saw, every fundraiser plan, every phone call, every candidate conversation was, was the two of us doing it. We now have over 20 staff. You know, we raised a little over $20 million last year. You know, we're, we're going to stay there. It's, it's really been a, a journey of um, just faith and support. And, you know, we're just trying to go up from here. What do you think was the turning point? Like, what do you think got you from scrambling and hustling to some stability and and real growth? I can think of um, three really quick pivotal moments. One is, so the, the first slate of candidates we endorsed included Val Demings, Kamala Harris. Um, I can remember introducing people to Val Demings. And I mean, now look at her, you know, and so that was pivotal because, you know, you, you have a, a shining star like Val Demings and it's like, okay, yeah, let me, let me give her some money. And so those first few candidates helped to bring in money that, to, to and, and we pride ourselves on being a pack that gives money. Like, you know, this is, this is no shade to any other pack that's out there. Your pack should be giving checks to candidates. That is our, our golden purpose. And so, you know, we, we were able to have some really good fundraising around our kind of initial slate of candidates. That's one. Two is um, then the 2018 crop of folks came in. So Ayanna Pressey, Johanna Hayes, Lucy McBath, Joe Nagoose, like that, that whole crop of folks was also able to show, whoa, we have some, some real up and comers who are about to be Congress people and we have to advocate for them. And it was also around a time where there was the Senate race in Alabama with Doug Jones. And we did radio ads throughout the state. We were able to work with Spike Lee, who I had known his wife from the Obama campaign. And he did radio ads for us. And um, from that experience, Brittany Packnett Cunningham wrote an article for The Cut magazine saying, you should thank these groups with your money for what they did in 2018 and what they did for Doug Jones getting elected, we had an onslaught of money coming. We had like $100,000 come in from her article. That was the foundational. It was the most money we had. It was insane how much money. And at that moment, it was like, all right, moment number two, like that puts us on a different level. We have a little bit of, we have some stability. Let's go. Third is last year, you know, again, me and Quinn, our, our bread and butter knowledge comes from organizing civic engagement. We got to play in civic engagement. We created the Collective Education Fund, which is our C3, and Collective Future, which is our C4, to do Black voter engagement. We were able to get $2 million from Bloomberg this last cycle. Turn that $2 million into 10 turn that 10 into 20 You know, Jay-Z says you got to flip, flip that money. And you have to be able to make 
connections to do- our, our average contribution is $35. So I don't want to make it seem like it's just a bit. It is really trying to have a connection between these candidates and everyday folks who want to see new people in office. So those, I think, are really three big kind of turning points for us. Um, and so now we definitely are an organization that is very much committed on the electoral side, but equally committed on the nonpartisan civic engagement side, too. So what do you think you learned about entrepreneurship in the political space doing all this, making making all these organizations out of whole cloth from nothing? One, one major thing is you don't want to cut yourself off at the knees um, and you want to be responsive to the moment. And so... You know, we we recognize pretty early on that listen, the PAC can only take certain types and certain amounts of money. All right, we got to get this pot though in order to do this kind of work. So we got to have a super PAC. So we got to start that. But you know what? We got to do this nonpartisan stuff. So we have to have a C three. And so it, by cutting yourself out the nut, allow yourself to be able to experience and receive everything you can in the space in which you're trying to operate. But every time you do that, you got to file a lot of forms. You got to do a lot of bookkeeping. You add a lot of overhead. You know, it's daunting, isn't it? I'm so glad you said that. Number two, you have to have a dynamic team and reputable, strong vendors. Our accountants are some of the best in the business. They do, I don't know, 80 other campaigns, 80 other organizations. Um, Perkins Coie is our lawyers. I mean, the best in the business. So we knew we had to invest in hiring the best to do the paperwork, to make sure legally we're good. That was the foundational aspects that we had to have before we paid. We're not paying ourselves until we pay Perkins Coie, until we pay you know our accountants. And so, yeah. And because of that, then it gave us more flexibility to say, you know what? We're going to start another organization today. Hey, can you file this paperwork or can you help us figure out how to do it and, and just make it make it happen? And don't worry that you can't hire people. You get a couple people that can do things as an independent contractor for a few hours, even any a little bit help that you can get. Take it. But most importantly, you know, try to work with people that you at least have some semblance of, of, of trust with, because we, we've also had our share of uh, challenges in the uh, staffing department. But. Um, we've 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 learned a lot there too, as well, which is why now we have a, an operations and HR director at the collective, which I'm very grateful for. I understand you did some kind of post election analysis after 2020. What did you What did you learn in that election? Yeah, one is that you know as much as we tout the success of Black and youth and people of color voter turnout, oh, we lacked in so many different areas. I mean. For example, voter turnout in Cuyahoga County, which, you know, used to really be a, a bastion of um, turnout and, you know, a Democratic stronghold. Turnout went down. <laughs> Who would have thought turnout in the 2020 election would have gone down? But it did. And Black voter turnout especially was not as strong as initial numbers made it seem. And so we have a lot of work to do to connect the importance of why I should vote uh, with people. And also that, you know, the the progressive, the democratic establishment, we cannot have generic messages anymore. Let's go back to my original point. We can't have, you know, a one size fits all approach to how we're going to talk to people of color, even black people. You know, we have to be much more granular in our outreach and 
make sure that we are investing in turning black people are persuasion voters and we haven't been treated as persuasion voters. Um, Latino voters are persuasion voters. And in other words, you have to make a case to these people. They're like any other citizen. We have to, we have to make the case. Exactly. And in order to make the case, you got to spend some money. You have to be able to create the materials. You have to have the people that are constantly in conversations. You have to have year-round organizing. This is a 365-day thing. And, you know, so that's that's just some of the, I think, major things that we, we saw through that report. What did you make of the Trump campaign and the Republicans' attempt to to compete to some degree for the Black vote? How did that go? And what does it augur? I, I am perpetually impressed by the communications mechanism on the right. You talk about being extremely focused and just dogmatic about hitting the drumbeat of the message. And wherever I can hit that drumbeat, however I can hit it, no matter if the information is real or not, which typically the information is false, but you can hit a false drumbeat every single day if nobody is coming with that melodic flute to say, no, don't listen to that, that's false. Listen to this beautiful flute of truth over here. No, then I'm gonna keep hitting the drumbeat. Which shows that yeah, we have to um, we have to have a drumbeat message that we're also giving that we have to be in places where you know perhaps other folks don't want it. I, I'll never forget on the 2012 campaign, there were some organizers that were external that weren't really affiliated with an organization that I could count on these guys to go into um, project housing in order to talk to black voters. Whereas there were some organizations that were established that I could never get them to do that kind of work. We're now at a place where you don't physically have to go into certain places, but you have to meet folks on social media where they are. And so I think, you know, progressives and Democrats have to have that that more consistent and fast and quick drum. We 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 want to lay it on thick. Give me give me a five second sound bite, okay? And then I can repeat that every single day. And that's what the Republicans and Trump are so good at. These quick sound bites of misinformation, oftentimes, that just resonate. Yeah. Do you think that low turnout in the county you mentioned in Ohio had to do with their message? It's hard to put a finger on these things, I think, yeah. sometimes. Do you, do you have a sense? I, I, think, I think that's one. I think two is civic engagement voting, this drumby message, it has to be a lifestyle. Until we make this a, a lifestyle that we're all investing in, we can't keep expecting people just to show up to vote in November, let alone the primaries, but, but definitely they're in generals. And, and when people feel like they don't see you, they don't hear you. I mean, I would drive around and like not hardly see any yard signs for anybody or just even say, Hey, election day is on, you know, November, whatever. Like, you have to constantly be in people's consciousness. And when you're not, then they're like, okay, what, what does it matter? And then therefore tie in what address head on the dismay that people feel when it comes to politics. Politics is a, is a bad word now. We got to address that. Why do you feel that way? Address it, but also show people who you vote for matters um, from judges on to the president. Um, school board, you know, onto the just, Senate. Just constant political education. It has to. It has to. We, it, if we don't do that um, on a consistent 365 basis, 
I think we're going to continue to struggle. Who are you supporting in 2022 that you're excited about? What does it look like? Oh my goodness. I'm so one, we're, you know, I think we're going to have another historic year where we have more black people running for Senate than we've had before. Now 2020 was great. I think we have five black Senate candidates all in the South. So as they say, the South has something to say. That is, that's true. We're very excited about Val Demings running for Senate in Florida. Very excited about Sherry Beasley, who's running for Senate in North Carolina. She lost her state race to um, become chief justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court by less than 400 votes. For a Black woman to get that close in a statewide race is monumental. And so, you know, we're excited about her race. Um, Charles Booker in Kentucky is thinking about running against Mitch McConnell. That's going to be... Uh, exciting to see Mandela Barnes and Wisconsin's thing about Senate as well. Um, so those, are, I would say, as far as Senate candidates, we're extremely excited about. Um, actually, an election coming up uh, fairly soon is Alvin Bragg in New York, who's running for a Manhattan district attorney. That would be huge. The number of folks who are running for Congress is incredible. With Val running in a Senate, you know, we now, I think we're up to three Black candidates that are running for her seat. Which I don't recommend multiple black candidates running. That's a whole that's a whole nother episode, Daniel. But so it sounds like you're 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 off to the races for this. We, we are. We yeah. are. Our 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 number one focus, let me not say number one, one point five. Our our one point five yeah. focus is to elect a black woman to the Senate. We need to elect a black woman to the Senate. It's disrespectful that we don't have a black woman's voice in the Senate. So that that is our primary priority, which is why we're going to be going extremely hard for Sherry and for Val in now and in 22. Stephanie, is there a question that I failed to ask you that I should have? As much as we love to see the progress of, of how many Black candidates are running for office, we also want to be extremely realistic that one, it is very hard for a Black candidate to win statewide. And so when we have multiple Black candidates that are trying to run statewide, it puts us in a bit of a, a challenging position because... Do you have to play a role, do you think, in in picking the stronger? We try to really assess. We try to be really thoughtful about how we get involved in races when we do, when, when we don't, you know, when we have difficult conversations with candidates. Um, and we always work to be metrics-based. And so when you look at, you know, what is your path to victory? The path to victory has to show that you actually have a path to victory. If you can communicate those numbers and the numbers actually make sense and you can show that your support is there, whether there's multiple black candidates in a race or not, it's, it's very difficult to feel as though you have an, an earnest shot. And listen, we're raising good money, but we need those resources to go um, where they will best be utilized because we don't have as much money as black candidates as other candidates in a race most times. There was a report that just came out about um, you know, the disparaging figures between a black woman candidate and a white woman candidate, that black woman is going to get far less money as the similar type candidate than that white woman candidate is going to get. So we have to be really strategic about how we use our resources, which is why, you know, you have to really assess if this other person is in a race, how does it impact my numbers? And, and be honest with yourself about path to victory. And so. Stephanie, there's plenty more we could talk about. And I really appreciate you taking the time today. It's Thank been an you, honor. Thank you, I appreciate it so much. Thank you for your wonderful questions. Any Anything else you want to say? Last thing I would say, here go, last thing, last thing, for real last thing is, you know, we are championing Black candidates that 
want to progress the Black community forward. And so, you know, we don't say Democratic, Republican, you know, we say progressive candidates to have a, you know, a forward thinking agenda. So we don't support just any Black candidate because they're Black. We are really looking for those folks who are committed to creating policies that will advance, not just because when you advance the Black community forward, you're going to really advance everybody forward. And, you know, I just think it's really important that as candidates and as we as voters look at candidates that are running, that we really look at their platforms and what their policy prescriptions are to see who is focused on generating ideas that we need to have strong policies in place. That was Stephanie Brown-James. She's at collectivepack.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.